0: Good morning. We are at uh, week number two of our class on spiritual disciplines. i to begin with a question. How often do we worship God every week? Your answer to that question is based on your perception or uh, based on how you think about worship. Um Worship can be defined in a few different ways. But is worship something that we only do when we come to church on Sunday? When we come to meet with other believers? Or is this statement true that we have here on the the projection screen is all of life worship? Today we want to do two things. Number 1, we want to hear what the Bible says about worship and then number 2, we want to understand the relationship of worship and the spiritual disciplines, how do they relate to one another? Um, so before we get into this um, statement from the Westminster Confession, let me begin with the word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for Jesus. He is fairer than all the lilies. He's the the greatest uh, gift that we've ever received. He's our greatest possession. We love to have a relationship with Him. We love to know Him and to, to know the the um the power that is in his cross and in his resurrection we love to um to to be conformed to his image uh we love to share him with other people we love him to make him the center of what we do we want to do that in this class today so help us as we seek to honor and lift his name up and to honor you we pray in Jesus name amen all right so perhaps you've heard this This uh, statement here at the top of your handout, this comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism and it says, it's in answer to the question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Have you ever thought about your purpose in life in those terms? that your greatest purpose is to enjoy God, to glorify God, and to enjoy Him forever. In thinking about worship, we must first think about our basic duty. What is our basic duty as those who are created in God's image for a specific purpose, and especially as those who have been redeemed by the blood of His Son? So let's unpack this, and and that's what those four... uh, statements are below that. First, appreciation. Um, this is uh, broken down by a Puritan by the name of Thomas Watson. He takes this statement and breaks it down into four categories or four sections. Number one, appreciation. To glorify God is to set God a- as highest in our thoughts. It-, it means to abound in thanksgiving toward Him. It, it is to um, to enjoy what He has done, to to Glorify God. To honor God in what we do. Number two, to adore Him. Adoration. To adore God is to ascribe to Him the glory that is due to Him, the honor and praise, to acknowledge that He's reverently deserving of our worship. Number three, affection. It is to enjoy Him forever, the The statement says. To love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where the statement comes from. That we are to love God. That's the the chief end of of man, we are to love him with all that we have, and then number four, subjection to subject ourselves to God is to dedicate ourselves completely in obedience to him. We submit to his will. that's how he's honored in our lives. He's not just honored because we're his children. he's honored when we when we uh, exalt him when he when we honor him, and so we have to submit ourselves to him. So, in summary, faith in the person of Christ makes worship possible, and and it has to be done through love. It's not just something done um, just through basic duty. Uh, This is a great chapter on worship here in in Donald Whitney's book, which I'm I'm leaning on pretty heavily for our study, and in there he uses an illustration of um, bringing flowers home to his wife. He actually uh, cites another pastor who does that, but brings flowers home to his wife, and and after giving these beautiful roses to his wife, he says, well, the only reason I did it was because it was my duty. I mean, how would the wife take that? I mean, from there, she's kind of thinking, well, gee, that's really special. That feels great that you did this because it was your duty. No, instead, it would be ideal if he did that because it was out of joy. It was because of what is flowing from his heart. He loves his wife so much that he, he's happy to bring home these roses. And that uh, ought to be, we ought to kind of take that picture and bring it over into worship because sometimes that's what worship can be for us. It's just, well, I'm doing it because I have to. I mean, how how do you think God feels when we when we think about worship in that way? This is what Christians do, so I'm doing it. I mean, how much better if we are delighting to worship in God, to, to spend time with Him, to fellowship with Him. And that can only happen through what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so what we want to think about today is how can we make this, we're calling it a spiritual discipline, something that we discipline ourselves to do so that it does become a delight for us. And and what we're going to find is that the spiritual disciplines are actually a means of growing in that love, of growing in our godliness, and to finding that place where we are um, one with God, we are fellowshipping with God in worship. Turn to Revelation chapter 4. Why should we worship God? Revelation chapter 4. Would someone read verses 10 and 11? Why was God worshipped, according to verse eleven? Because He's the Creator. That's number one. Okay, so here's the first reason why we ought to worship God: because He is our Creator. He made us. And then, secondly, chapter five, verse nine. Would some re- someone read verses nine through fourteen? And as you're as whoever's reading, as you're listening, I want you to think: why ought we to worship God? In addition to the fact that He is our Creator. Why ought we to worship God? Verses 9 through 14. Right, according to verse 12, why ought we to worship God? He's our creator and what? All right. He's our savior. So number two, he's our redeemer, our, our savior. So we could say it this way. We are doubly owned by God. He made us and he bought us. He made us and we turned from him and followed after our master's sin and Satan, and he bought us back out of that slavery. And so we doubly belong to God. So how ought we to think about worship? If you look through the scriptures, you're not going to find a single definition. You know, you're not going to be able to find worship is and then it explained. It's not going to you're not going to find that. Instead, what you're going to find is several words used that are translated as worshiped or used in the context of worship that will help us to to see what worship is all right and the first word the word that's most commonly used in the old testament is found in exodus chapter 34 why don't we turn there exodus 34 and it's a word that means homage it literally means to bend oneself at the waist it's the opposite of of uh What would happen to a person who was stiff-necked? You know, God would often talk about these people that you are stiff-necked people. The opposite of that is to bend oneself at the waist, to submit, to bow down in worship to God. So Exodus 34, 8, would someone read that for us? Okay, so here uh, Moses is receiving the tablets um, there at Mount Sinai and he bows low at the waist. That's a word that's translated in other places as homage or worship. All right, the second uh, term that's used for the word worship has to do with service. And we see this in Deuteronomy 12, verses 3 and 4. It literally means to serve. It's the the language that's used to imply that God is a great king and he deserves to be served, to, to for us to give give him um our our service of of work or our work chapter 12 Deuteronomy verse 3 you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their asherim with fire and you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place you shall not act like this toward the the Lord your God you should but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all the tribes. So, um, this implies a devotion to God alone, to, to giving ourselves not to the false gods, but to the true and living God. The final uh, use of the term is um, reverence. It's used to indicate the fear and reverence and respect that is due to God. It involved keeping God's commandments, walking in his ways, turning from evil. And so, in the three of these terms, the three primary ways in which we learn about worship in the scriptures, we understand it as as um, homage, bowing down to God, serving God, and reverencing God. So, we need to, to think about worship in those terms. and And worship must be done according to how God wants to be worshipped. Our worship is of no value if it's solely uh built around what we desire. It ought to be designed or done around what God desires. So we think about acceptable worship. How can we know what acceptable worship is? Well, we're going to see here uh next that that the means of acceptable worship worship happens in two ways. Number 1 through revelation and number 2 through redemption. So first through Revelation. We can't come to God acceptably unless God tells us how He wants to be approached. Right? We have to come to God. So turn to Leviticus chapter 10. We'll see a passage that we looked at not too long ago in the morning service. Leviticus chapter 10. What we want to see here is that God has a certain set of parameters That he set up in order to be worshiped acceptably. So, Leviticus chapter 10, would someone read verses 1 through 3? Here, here are two men who are in the priestly line who come to God. Apparently, they come to the most holy place without being invited and think that they can be accepted by God on their own terms. And what God is teaching them and teaching us is that he must, we must come to Him on His terms. And, and so he lays down all these terms for the Old Testament Israel as to how they can come to him. And as we saw as we went through the book of Leviticus, it's very, um, it, it's very specific. It's very intricate, the, the responsibility that Israel has. And similarly, in the New Testament, we have several exhortations concerning how we ought to live and how we ought to gather for public worship. New Testament makes clear that the Bible is central to public worship. And what this teaches us is that uh, because the Scriptures are centered, that tells us that it, that we need to come to God according to His terms. When we put the Bible at the center of what we do, we're listening to God and let, letting Him reveal to us what He wants from our worship. So, for example, 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul commands Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of scripture to exhortation and to teaching. One one pastor writes that when we gather for corporate worship, we should read the Bible, hear the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible and see the Bible as it's displayed in the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Donald R- Whitney writes in his book Bible reading and preaching are central to public worship because they are the clearest, most direct, most extensive presentation of God in the meeting. And so if our worship is done apart from what the scriptures say and what the scriptures demand, then our worship is not going to be acceptable before God. God alone is the one who determines how He will be worshipped, and this is what um, this is why the scriptures must shape and regulate our corporate worship. I've talked about this before in other settings that that we must. Only include the elements of worship in our service that the Scriptures have already prescribed. That inside the corporate worship of our church, we should not be including other things that are kind of innovative, innovative from our from our perspective. There are two extremes that can lead us astray from proper New Testament worship. Number one, this is kind of small, but I'll I'll go ahead and read it, and if you can read it, great. If not, I'll. Uh, Try to, try to follow along. It's a little bit of a longer quote. It's from J.I. Packer in his book called A Quest for Godliness. And here's how he describes one extreme of our worship. It's called experientialism. See if you can think about people who worship in this way. He says their outlook is one of casual haphazardness and fretful impatience, of grasping after novelties, entertainments, and highs, and of valuing strong feelings about deep thoughts. They have little taste for solid study, humble self-examination, disciplined meditation, and unspectacular hard work and their callings and their prayers. They conceive the Christian life as one of exciting, extraordinary experiences rather than of resolute, rational righteousness. They dwell continually on the themes of joy, peace, happiness, satisfaction, and rest of soul with no balancing reference to the divine discontent of Romans 7, 7, the fight of faith of Psalm 73, or the lows of Psalm 42, 88, and 102. Through their influence, the spontaneous jollity of the simple extrovert comes to be equated with healthy Christian living, while the saints of less sanguine and more complex temperament get driven almost to distraction because they cannot bubble over in the prescribed manner. In their restlessness, these exuberant ones become uncritically credulous, reasoning that the more odd and striking an experience, the more divine, supernatural, and spiritual it must be, and they scarcely give the scriptural virtue of steadiness a thought. you know any, anybody or any churches that, that pursue worship in that way? It's all about the experience. It's not about trying to know God as he wants to be known. It's about the experience. And so that's one extreme. Now, we can, we can uh, have a pro- We'll talk about the, the problem of avoiding that at all. Like, oh, we don't want an experience. We just want to be kind of like monks and have no feeling. But, um, but that's one extreme. The other extreme is intellectualism. Intellectualism. He says this with regard to those who worship in in this other extreme. So experientialism, intellectualism. Constantly, these people present themselves as rigid, argumentative, critical Christians. They're champions of God's truth for whom orthodoxy is all. Upholding and defending their own view of that truth is their leading interest, and they invest themselves unstintingly in this task. There's little warmth about them. Relationally, they're remote. Experiences do not mean much to them. Winning the battle for mental correctness is their own great purpose. They see, truly enough, that in our anti-rational, feeling-oriented, instant gratification culture, that conceptual knowledge of divine things is undervalued, and they seek with passion to right the balance at this point. Um, sorry about that. Um They understand the priority of the intellect well. The trouble is that intellectualism, expressing itself in endless campaigns for their own brand of right thinking, is almost, if not quite all, they can offer, for it is almost, if not quite all, that they have. They too, so I urge, need exposure to the Puritan heritage for their maturing. What we uh, want to see from these two extremes is that the Christian life of worship is is not a quest solely for a feeling, experientialism. And it's not solely a quest for intellectualism that's divorced from experience. But rather, it's a quest for a relationship that includes both. Paul's prayer for the people to whom he often wrote would be something like this. I pray that you would grow in your knowledge and your love. You see how both of those are included? Your knowledge and your love for the Lord Jesus Christ or for the scriptures he wanted them to grow in how they and how they um they did both of these things that that it's about a relationship it's not about one or the other we can only come to God according to what he has revealed and so what we do in our church we seek to make the word the center of what we do in worship all right so number 1 God has revealed Himself through revelation, then number two, or through His Word, and then number two, God has revealed Himself supremely in Christ, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Can I get uh, four volunteers to read a passage of Scripture? Just raise your hand. Bill, can you read Hebrews 1, 1 and 2? Eric, John 1, 18. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. John one eighteen. And then two more. Ken, Psalm nineteen one to three, Psalm nineteen one to three, and then Paul, Romans one twenty. All right. So God has revealed Himself supremely, supremely in His Son. Bill, would you read Hebrews one one and two? So many times in many ways in the past, God has revealed Himself in various ways, but now, Hebrews says, He has spoken to us through His Son. John 1.18. No one one Alright, so Jesus is at the center of our worship. Uh the revelation of God in Christ has brought us salvation, and that makes Jesus the center of our worship. In fact, for all of eternity, we will be worshiping Jesus. He will be at the center of our worship. You know, we just read in Revelation chapter 5, Worthy are you because you're the the Lamb that was slain, and you, uh, you, you brought about these kingdoms and tribes and tongues and nations together. All right, number three, God has revealed Himself through creation. Psalm 19, 1 through 3.
1: 120.
0: Alright, so God reveals Himself to us not only through His Word, not only through His Son, but He also reveals Himself to us through His creation. Now we can understand it better. On this side of the cross, that is this sign of salvation. but what's clear from Romans 20 is, or 120 is that everyone knows that there is a God. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. So the, the crashing surf and the, the beautiful redwood and, and the, the majesty of, uh, of the great sky at night, or the sunrise and sunset, the, these are all pointing to God's greatness, God's majesty, and some way they reveal something about God. And number four, God has redeemed us. So not only has He revealed us in these three primary ways, but also He has redeemed us through His Son. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament tabernacle, which was a meeting place between the people and God. Now we come to Christ in order to meet God. He has made reconciliation for us and we call that our redemption. So Fundamentally, worship in the New Testament means believing the gospel and responding with one's whole life and being to the person and work of God's Son. And we do this through the Spirit. And that's where we come to next, John 4, 23 and 24. You know, the Samaritan woman, Jesus is talking to her, and she inquires about a place of worship. Where can we meet the true God? And Jesus speaks, rather than talking about a specific place, He says, We must worship God in in spirit and in truth. And what this tells us is that that, uh, worship is fundamentally God-centered. It's made possible by the Spirit. We shouldn't think that we worship in spirit or in truth, but these things are, are necessarily linked together. That when we worship in spirit, we worship in truth. When we worship in truth, we worship in the Spirit. It can't be distinguished one from the other. And and so we seek to, to do this um, not by coming to a place, but by meeting a person that is the Holy God through the Spirit that lives within us. And we do this according to what He wants. That's what the truth part of it is about. It's about the truth of His Word. What has He revealed about what He wants to worship and who He allows to worship Him and so on. All right. Any uh, thoughts or questions before we we see how this relates to the spiritual disciplines? Alright, how should we worship God through the spiritual disciplines? How should we worship God through the spiritual disciplines? We've considered what the Bible says about worship. Now we want to think, how does this relate to the spiritual disciplines? Um, Our all-of-life worship is expressed through the disciplines both individually and corporately as a church. So first, let's think about it individually. Worship ought to manifest itself in our lives every day. That is, when we're not together as a church body. A.W. Tozer writes, if you will not worship God seven days a week, then you do not worship Him one day a week. Think about that for a second. If you do not worship God seven days a week with your life, the way that you meet with Him and talk with Him, then you do not worship God one day a week. Our God is worthy of our worship every day of our lives. And that's why Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that we must offer our bodies as living what? Sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service of worship. Here's how we worship God. We give our whole lives to Him every single day. It's about God. And so um, it's not enough for us to just come one day a week and put on our worship clothes and our worship faces. We must we must worship God every day of the week. Corporate worship is, um, is a better experience, if I can say it that way, Corporate worship is done much better when we're worshiping the rest of the week. Here's what Donald Whitney says in his chapter here from uh, pages, page 93 um, on worship. He says, How is it possible to worship God publicly once each week when we do not worship Him privately throughout the week? He says, Can we expect the flames of our worship of God to burn brightly in public on the Lord's Day when they barely flicker for Him in secret? On, others, on other days. Isn't it because we do not worship well in private that our corporate worship experience often dissatisfies us? There is no way, says the Welsh Baptist Jeffrey Thomas, that those who neglect secret worship can know communion with God in the public services of the Lord's on the Lord's Day. Why would we expect our candle to burn brightly in corporate worship when our candle is barely flickering throughout the rest of the week? automatically it's just going to turn on. All of a sudden we're going to be inflamed to have these passions about God that we didn't have the rest of the week. The emphasis in the New Testament is about giving our whole lives to God, and that will enhance our corporate worship of God. Have you known times times in your life, hopefully regular times in your life, where you have had sweet fellowship with God throughout the week, and then when you come to meet with God's people, it's a great time of meeting with God. It's a, it's a time where you just can't get enough, and uh, that's the way it ought to be. Bill. I think that's I mean I think that's very much the case in many in many ways but uh frankly um I I have to admit that, that that's the case with me at times as well that there are times when my fellowship with God throughout the week is not as sweet as it ought to be as it's not as um as personal as it ought to be and when I come to worship God on a Sunday then perhaps my Candle is not flickering or, or is not flaming as, as brightly as it ought to be. So I think I think your point is um, is valid that there are definitely professors of Christ that are not genuine believers, and um, and so that very well could be the case for many people. But um, sadly, even as Christians, I think we we struggle with that, Bill. I know what you mean. Yep. Yep. Mark. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm trying to think. look Okay. I got you now. Greg. Well, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, the, the um, four services a week is pretty hard for most people to make it to already. So, um, you know, um, I I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to that, but it you know have to require a lot more planning and a lot more willingness on the part of people to actually to be here. So, I mean, Hebrews ten. Clearly, talks not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but even more so as we as we see the day approaching, that we ought to be meeting together with God's people. And all right, so so there's as individuals, but we want to focus primarily on together as a believers. That is corporately, how do we come to worship? And and we kind of tied those two things together already by saying that when we worship God with our lives throughout the week, then our our corporate worship is enhanced. And conversely, our corporate worship actually fuels our individual worship. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 say, uh, these verses I j- was just quoting, that, that we ought to encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, and, and, um, and we need to spur one another on to love and good works. So here's one of the great things that happens when you come to worship with other believers is that people come and encourage you to worship God more faithfully with your lives. Now, one of the ways they do that is simply by showing up. Uh, they just Their being here is a testimony that they think that God is real and that God is worthy of being worshipped. And so that's an encouragement to you. That's an encouragement to me when I see people here that want to worship God. Uh, the other way is by actually speaking to one another and provoking them to love and good works, by encouraging them, strengthening them in their faith. And uh, so this is, these are some of the things we need to think about when we come to meet with God's people. How can I encourage someone else so that all of their life would be given to to worship, not just on Sunday? This is what Paul is often talking about with regard to Edification. He's saying that that you need to build one another up, and Paul was great at doing this. He was constantly thinking about how they could be moved forward in their progression of the gospel. How could they be moved to the next level of glory, as Second Corinthians three eighteen says? How could they be uh, be advancing in the progress of the gospel? I'm not talking fundamentally about evangelism, although that's not excluded. But but I'm talking about just in the in knowing the gospel more and and living according to the gospel. We're going to talk about that this morning when we look at Philippians because that's, I think, the point of the book is that that we must have joy in seeing the progress of the gospel and being a part of the progress of the gospel. And one of the things that we do when we come together for corporate worship is we help encourage other people to be a part of that progress with the, the, the gospel. So we do that several ways. One, through attending the various services that we have here and then, too, by actually speaking to one another uh, about the truth and what what they need to hear. Scripture knows nothing of an individualistic, lone ranger Christianity, does it? There, there's no talk of Christian living in isolation of other believers because the church is described as a body and a temple, a household, a family, and all of those imply that there are more than one people. There is more than one people, right? There, there's more than one person. There's, there is a group of people that are coming together. And so we, we encourage corporate worship. Just as an example, one of the things that we do as a church, you know, sometimes we can come to church and say, well, I have to, I, I come to worship God, and that's true. We should come to worship God, but but there's actually a secondary responsibility that we have for example when we sing sing to one another in songs in hymns and spiritual songs and 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 uh sing and make melody in your hearts to the lord so we're singing to god we ought to be singing to god you know sometimes we hear this phrase you know i have an audience of one you know god is my audience i don't care what anybody else thinks but well, that's actually not biblical. I I understand the sentiment behind it, but but actually we have an audience of more than just one. In our worship, we ought to be we ought to be encouraging, edifying one another in how we sing and how we talk about God's word and so on. And so obviously, we don't want to make that the center of what we're doing that we care what everybody thinks. But if we're not considering that at all, then I don't think it's acceptable worship before God either because we have become very individualistic in our worship and we've forgotten these brothers and sisters in Christ that God has has sent His Son to die for. So, let me just give some concluding thoughts here. Number one, we become like what we worship. What is it that you have given the greatest value to in your life? Well, that's the things that you're going to become, that, that you're going to become like. If it is God, then you will become like God, and that's ultimately what um, worship is all about. It's us meeting our God, having a relationship with God, and becoming more like Him. Number two, worship is both an end, end and a means. It's an end in itself because it's about God's glory. It's engaging with God on the terms that He decides that He has chosen. But at the same time, it's also a means to godliness. So here's how it connects to our spiritual disciplines. That when we come to worship God, we worship God because He wants to be worshipped, but it also helps us to grow in godliness. When we come to worship God, we come to offer up something to Him, some praise. And somehow God allows us to leave this place having heard Him speak, and He refines us. He changes us. So it's an end. It it actually brings us into conformity with His Son. And then number three, we ought to consider the object of our worship. That it is our Creator and it is our Redeemer. That God made us and He bought us. So when we worship, we ought to do it with that in mind that we come offering this gift of praise to him not out of duty primarily but out of a joy because of what he's done for us and and this if you're not stirred up in your heart to worship God if if worship has become for you a big drudgery and and a big ritual then the way that your heart is going to be stirred is when you're worshiping in spirit and in truth. And so here's what you have to do. Go back to where the Spirit speaks. And where is that? In God's Word and through prayer. So we just go back and we start hearing from God. What What is it, God, that I need to know in order for me to change my view of how I worship You? We need to engage our minds in every aspect of worship. And so I would encourage you, even this next hour, as we come together as a church for the purpose of honoring God through our lives and our, and the way that we speak about Him and sing about Him, <clears throat> that I would encourage you to engage your mind in every aspect of our worship service. What are we doing and why are we doing these things? What are we talking about? When we're sitting here and the, and the Word of God is opened for... Period of time, what are we thinking about? We're thinking about what this is actually God speaking to us through His Word, or or do we have something else on our minds? And uh, and so we need to engage our minds in worship. When you do this, I think God is satisfied, and also it will be an encouragement to you, a strengthening of your soul, and it will also encourage other believers um, as, as you come to do this. So, all of life is worship. Our individual worship contributes to our cor- corporate worship, and our corporate w- worship contributes to our individual worship. All right? So there's the first spiritual discipline we wanted to talk about. Next week we'll look at Bible intake. That is, how do we receive the Word from God? How do we hear God speak to us? And obviously you can think of several ways in which that happens. We'll take a couple weeks to look at that. Any questions or comments, thoughts? Bill? Bill? Well, I wouldn't say I do. I would say that the Holy Spirit does. <laughs> yeah, well thankfully thankfully talent's not involved. Yeah, thankfully talent's not involved in that in that uh command. It has nothing to do with, with how good a person sings. Uh all that the Spirit says is, is sing to one another. So if we want to obey him in that way, then we need to sing. Best that we can. So, all right. Any other thoughts or questions? All right, good. Thank you for your attention. Um, look forward to worshiping God together with you the next hour. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful, we are thankful that you hear us when we pray to you. And we, we know that you hear us because you promised to hear from your people and to respond. And you're a good Father, and you give us good gifts. Sometimes we don't know exactly what to ask, um, but but you know what we need even before we ask it. And you would never give us a a a fish when we ask, or or you never give us a stone when we ask for a fish. Uh, You you would give us exactly what we need and what we uh, would be most beneficial for our growth in godliness. Lord, help us. We pray in this next hour. Give us the strength. Uh, and the attention and the focus that we need in order to, uh, to reflect on what you have done for us and on what you are doing in us, that you are changing us, and help us to be able to think of ways in which we can encourage others to love and good works, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.